0: When the Supreme Court heard arguments about affirmative action this week, Slate's "Marches of Stern" was surprised. not by the cases at hand he'd been watching and waiting for those to land at the court for years. He wasn't surprised by the epically long oral arguments either, or by the many, many lawyers who threw themselves at the mercy of the justices one by one. What surprised Mark was the nature of the arguments the justice is unspooled.
1: What was so remarkable is that the actual Constitution, like the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, which is ostensibly at the heart of, of these cases, it did not really come up until halfway through arguments.
0: What Mark is talking about here is something I noticed right away when I listened in. Debating affirmative action seemed very personal to this court. The justices are known for couching their opinions in the rigid framing of the legal system. But as they debated the value of diversity, they sounded more like frustrated relatives at Thanksgiving.
1: I welcome the court's questions.
0: Uh, Mr. Park, um, I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. Uh, it seems to mean everything for everyone. For instance, here is Justice Clarence Thomas, questioning a lawyer arguing in favor of affirmative action. Thomas asks, how does diversity actually help students learn? And the lawyer answers that actually even his legal adversary concedes that diversity leads to a richer learning environment. And then the lawyer brings up how racially diverse groups of stockbrokers make better financial decisions.
1: And that leads to a more efficient outcome.
0: Well. I guess I don't put much stock in that because I've heard similar arguments in favor of segregation, too. Uh, I'd like to in other words, Thomas has made up his mind. Or as
1: Mark says... These are not legal arguments, and they barely pretend to be. And I think if you're Clarence Thomas, you genuinely believe that young Black children are grievously harmed when the, the government or even private institutions, consider their race in uh, deciding whether or not to, to give them an education. And I think all of these justices are thinking about themselves when they were young, ambitious high schoolers. They're thinking about their own kids for the ones who have them. And they're just viewing this through a highly personal and kind of tender lens, rather than pretending even to approach it with the kind of objectivity that constitutional analysis ostensibly demands.
0: After these arguments, is there any chance affirmative action in college admissions
1: survives? Well, so I think the answer is yes and no. Does it survive in its current state? No, I don't think so. I think that the Supreme Court says these universities are not allowed to have a box that you check that says white, black, native, et cetera, and to use that box in admissions. But there's this whole other universe of tools that universities have at their disposal that's gonna be the next big fight. Schools are just gonna have to get more creative and hire a lot more lawyers to defend these policies against the onslaught of legal challenges.
0: Today on the show, affirmative action is over. Or is it? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. The Supreme Court considered two cases on affirmative action this week. They took on the admission standards at both the University of North Carolina and Harvard. Plaintiffs argue that because the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause bars racial discrimination by government entities, a public university or even a private university that accepts federal funds cannot use race as a factor in admissions.
1: The Harvard case was devised partly as a response to um, Fisher v. Austin, which was the 2016 decision in which the Supreme Court upheld affirmative action um, uh, for the third time in many years. The first decision was in 1978. The court said affirmative action is okay. Then in 2003, the court said affirmative action was okay. 2016, yet again, the court says we're okay with affirmative action. And in that decision, it ruled against a white student, Abigail Fisher, who had brought the lawsuit and alleged that she was discriminated against because she was white. That did not play well. Okay, that was very (laughs) embarrassing. Do you remember these Stay Mad Abby memes that proliferated on Twitter after that decision? It was like everyone was making fun of this white girl for not getting good enough grades to get into her chosen school and then filing a lawsuit to basically appeal her rejection. Now, the student... Denied admission to the University of Texas claims her race was held against her, forcing her to attend Louisiana State University. And folks, there is no greater injustice than having than having to attend your safety school. That was like not good optics. So the folks who funded that suit, it's a guy named Ed Bloom. He's sort of devoted to this cause of taking down affirmative action. He then created a group that purported to represent Asian-American students and applicants. And so when he brought this lawsuit against Harvard, the allegation was not just discrimination against white kids. It was discrimination against Asian-American students. That is the, the central allegation in the Harvard case, whereas in the UNC case, it's more of a typical run-of-the-mill allegation that there's just broad use of racial classifications and that the whole thing violates equal protection.
0: That's interesting, though. Like kind of it sounds like this guy Ed Bloom is kind of learning from his mistakes and saying it's going to look more sympathetic if there's a group that's getting undercut here that is not a white person.
1: And and he's correct. I mean, this was taking, I think, a cue from Justice Alito's dissent in Fisher, where he had this long passage arguing that um, University of Texas was discriminating against Asian American students. That has been an argument for some time. But I think Alito really teed it up for Ed Bloom and his merry band of litigators because they totally forefronted it. And I will say, like, it it creates much more sympathetic plaintiffs. I I think that a white girl who's sort of appealing her rejection letter is fundamentally fundamentally silly and ridiculous, (laughs) whereas Asian American students who feel that they were discriminated against, who are arguing that they have to hide their identities to get into good schools, there is real emotional and intellectual appeal in that, and it creates far better PR for this case than Abigail Fisher ever could.
0: Hmm. So let's talk about how these arguments went down. It seemed to me like you could really hear justices sweeping in To help the people they were aligned with, like conservative justices coming to the aid of the people arguing against affirmative action, liberal justices coming to the aid of folks arguing for it. I want to start with the conservatives. One thing I kept hearing was that college admissions is a zero sum game. The idea that you're in and you're out, and that's why race shouldn't be considered, because I guess. The stakes are too high?
1: Right. So this springs from a principle that the court previously established that affirmative action is, at worst, a victimless crime. That it's only ever a plus that universities will consider race to be a good thing if they're looking for more minorities, but never a bad thing. And that they'll never turn away a white applicant because they aren't a minority. And so this is just a kind of positive for a subset of students and otherwise irrelevant. And the argument. That the conservative justices make in response is that actually every student who is accepted into an incoming class displaces another applicant who has to be rejected that there is a limited number of spots in every class, and so if one student gets a, a leg up because of their race, that inherently means another student gets pushed down, and that I think raises the emotional stakes of these cases and really scrambles the victimless crime framing because it, it forefronts the alleged victims of this practice and kind of erases or pushes away the beneficiaries who are finally getting access to a great education that they might not otherwise have.
0: Yeah, and the liberal justices made a point to keep coming back to the idea of, like, is race ever actually decisive? Has there ever been a decision where there have been two students that you're looking at, one's white, one's black, and then like you have to choose the black one because that's how the cookie crumbles? Which is, how is race being used in this process? You keep saying we object to the use of race standing alone. But as I read the record and understand their process, it's never standing alone, that it's in the context of all of the other factors, there are forty factors, and of- I don't remember the lawyers really being able to respond to that because I don't think that's how the admissions system works.
1: No, it's not, and there's no evidence in the voluminous record to indicate that's how it works. That there's uh, a kind of um, duel between black students and white students, and the black students just win automatically. But that line of questioning led somewhere really interesting, and Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson in the UNC case pushed this pretty hard, and I think rightly so. She said, well, you know, even if you ban these boxes that kids can check to say whether they're white or black or whatever, even if you outlaw consideration of race as a formal factor, kids are still going to write about it in their essays. Kids are still going to explain how their backgrounds, their experiences, their identities informed their path to college, to this application. And she, she noted, I think correctly, that if the court says all consideration of race is illegitimate, then it would actually put Black kids and other racial minorities at a disadvantage. Because if you are a super talented violinist, or you are a very devout Muslim, or you have some kind of unique story that you want to tell in your application— The the university can consider that and say, wow, look at this. It proves that she really belongs here. But if you're Black and you write in your essay about how your identity and your struggle to overcome disadvantage in life has informed your views of the world, well, that could potentially be illegal for the university to consider. And so if you take this logic all the way, it really puts racial minorities at a disadvantage as compared to white students because it bars the college from considering any aspect of their personality, of their education, of their lives that intertwine with race. And I think that is a very troubling outcome.
0: I want to talk about one more thing that the conservative justices kept coming back to again and again. They kept pressing for a deadline. Like, when can we get rid of affirmative action if we don't do it now? And my understanding is that this arises from the fact that back in 2003, the Supreme Court had a ruling about affirmative action. Sandra Day O'Connor wrote in her opinion, like, I hope we can get rid of affirmative action in 25 years.
1: And as Justice Barrett said, indicated that um, these racial classifications are uh, potentially dangerous and and must have a logical endpoint instead of leaving it.
0: And I guess the conservative justices have like set their alarm clock for 25 years (laughs) and are like, whew, that's about to go off. And so now they're like, "Okay, well, if, you know, alarm clock goes off, I guess we got to stop then. And so they're asking for an alternative time. I'm cu- I'm curious what you made of that, because I just kept hearing it again and again. Like, they were like, when are we going to be done with this racial justice stuff?
1: I mean, it really shows how far afield you've gone from the Constitution itself when you're sort of asking Siri to set an alarm for when we have achieved <laughs> racial harmony in this country. This does, you're right, spring from O'Connor's prediction, wish casting, forecasting, whatever you want to call it, in 2003 that by 2028 the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary. But That really was not a fundamental part of the holding. It doesn't bind this court or lower courts. That was mere speculation that things are moving in the right direction. The march of racial progress is is moving forward. And hopefully in a quarter century that we will be in a great place and universities won't have to consider this this kind of policy. But of course, we aren't there. We're, We're not even at 2028 yet. We're still some years out And the conservative justices seem ready to ring that alarm now regardless. And when litigators tried to push back and say, well, you know, it's not really possible to to set a timer for when we will have achieved racial justice in this country. The conservative justice said, "Okay, well, but you have to because that was built into the analysis that any affirmative action program has to have a self-destruction mechanism and it has to be time limited. And we just have to hazard a guess as to when it will no longer be necessary. And that just feels like the weakest, most brazen kind of policymaking to me that has absolutely no connection to the 14th Amendment.
0: Okay, one more thing I want to do. Justice Sotomayor, it just struck me that she had a lot of moments in these arguments where she was very eloquent and she basically called out lawyers who are arguing against affirmative action and said, you're basically saying you don't think it matters if our institutions look like America. And doesn't it matter? (laughs) Isn't that important? And I wonder if there was one moment of Sotomayor that you had to tease out, like which it would be for you.
1: Well, I I actually think that Sotomayor and Kagan tag-teamed on this point. And uh, it was a smart move because Sotomayor has written and spoken eloquently about how she benefited from affirmative action and how important it is. And Kagan is more of a kind of cerebral type who does not often get emotional or sentimental – But both of them together made this very strong point that if you really discredit diversity as a compelling rationale, if you really don't believe it matters that our institutions look like America, you are simply closing your eyes to the lived reality of human beings in this country. And I thought that part of what it meant to be an American and to believe in American pluralism is that actually our institutions you know, are reflective of who we are as as a people in all our variety. And there was this one great colloquy where they were talking about these different scenarios and said, well, should a police department reflect the demographics of the community it's policing? Should a hospital try to ensure that its doctors can reflect the demographics of their patients? And I think all of that is so obvious based on Oodles of evidence that we have amassed over decades showing that, yes, there are better outcomes for communities when the police are more diverse. Yes, there are better outcomes for patients when uh, the doctors are more diverse. So it stands to reason that, indeed, there are better outcomes for students when their classmates are more diverse. And school is the pipeline for many of those Occupations. It is how you become a doctor, or uh, potentially an investigator, or and this was a great example that Justice Kagan tossed out a judge, and she asked, "Well, is it is it wrong for a judge to try to have a diverse set of clerks?" Really strongly alluding to the fact that Justice Brett Kavanaugh loves to talk about how he hires diverse clerks, and so that you know that shows that even. Freaking Brett Kavanaugh intuitively grasps the importance of diversity. And you can mount this legal argument that that Thomas is so wed to that it's all nonsense. It's just postmodern theory. It's faddish. It's stupid. But the reality of the United States today indicates something very different.
0: We'll be right back. Although the cases in front of the Supreme Court this week are about affirmative action, they also aired a whole lot of dirty laundry about how college admissions works more broadly, especially at elite institutions. One thing that came to light is just how much schools like Harvard give weight to legacy preference, that is, admitting the kids of alumni, most of them white. And no one's asking whether that's constitutional.
1: I think this is sort of undeniable after the trial in this case, where Harvard had to reveal all of these sordid details about its admissions. And it it taught the world that it has this strong built-in preference for athletes, legacies, the children of faculty, and uh, people on the dean's list. And they usually wind up there because of family donations. So these are people whose whose parents gave—
0: That's just like literally on a, a list the dean has.
1: Yeah. The dean that the, he then sends the admissions committee and says, "Hey, this guy's mom gave ten million dollars for a new art museum. Wink, wink. You know, maybe he belongs here." And those those preferences operate as a massive affirmative action machine for white students because all those categories that the students are much more likely to be privileged, wealthy white kids whose parents can afford to take them around the world to play fencing or squash. Or they are the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of uh, Harvard graduates who, when you go back through history, have been overwhelmingly white. And so you have this built-in preference that, that the school uses that is part of what creates this diversity problem in the first place. In a recent six-year period, 2,200 out of nearly 5,000 admitted white students at Harvard fell into one of these categories, okay? And that is a figure significantly higher than the overall number of admitted students who are Black or Hispanic. So more white kids are getting into Harvard because of this affirmative action for whites program than uh, Black and Hispanic kids are getting in just on the whole. And so I think there's a lot of valid criticism of how Harvard operates. It's clear that the school is not a meritocracy, that it is not using merit-based policies to figure out who belongs there.
0: Well, I mean, you could tell the conservatives knew that this was a good argument for them. Neil Gorsuch kept returning to the idea of squash players getting into Harvard. He really wanted to talk about that. And I guess I wonder, if the justices are about to drive a stake through the heart of affirmative action, do you think that the preference for wealthy white people, for legacies, is going to have to die with it? It just seems like it'll be harder to justify those things if you're having to completely upend the way you admit kids.
1: I think there will be very strong pressure for schools like Harvard to dial back the preferences for legacies, athletes, all of those groups.
0: So can we imagine what college admissions is going to look like in a year or two? Like the conservative justices really wanted to talk about this a little bit at least. They kept talking about the nine states that have banned schools from considering race in admissions. Do we know what the impact there has been?
1: So in these states, the number of admissions among underrepresented racial minorities has gone steadily downward in the years after they have outlawed affirmative action. It's just inevitable. As inevitable as the sunrise, states abolish affirmative action. Enrollment among underrepresented racial minorities drops. The way they have sometimes tried to course correct is by implementing something like a top 10% plan. And that's where students who are in the top of their class get guaranteed admission, even if they are at a super segregated non-white school that might have lower standards. And that has some corrective effect for sure. But at the end of the day, it seems very, very difficult to get back to where a school was when it was just allowing students to check a box and using that in the admissions process. It seems like that is the best way to ensure that a class has something approaching true representation of what this country looks like. And when you take that away, you leave schools with very broad, imperfect tools that will be subject to future litigation after this case and that don't accomplish what their proponents sometimes claim because, again, they're just so, such blunt instruments, it's impossible to recapture what schools are doing right now.
0: Mark says exactly how this case shakes out is going to depend on the court's ideological center. These days, that's Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh in particular has been sort of receptive to programs meant to increase diversity in the past. In a case the court considered a couple months back, he sided with the liberals to allow a magnet school in Virginia to implement the kind of regional 10% plan Mark just described. Whether he's going to be able to sway any of his conservative colleagues this time around, though, That's an open question.
1: You know, this is one of those instances where it really matters who writes the decision. okay? because we know pretty well how this case is going to come out. The court's going to say that what Harvard and UNC are doing is illegal and send schools back to the drawing board. If Clarence Thomas writes it, he's going to like preemptively try to ban any effort to build diversity in a student body because he doesn't think that's a legitimate goal. He thinks it's in fact bad because diversity is nonsense. But if you give this decision to Brett Kavanaugh, or maybe if John Roberts writes it, you, you'll probably see more wiggle room for the kinds of measures that most Americans do seem to support. And I think that would be the better political move here. If we accept, as I believe, that this case is really all about policy and politics, it would make a lot of sense for Roberts to say something like, well, checking a box isn't allowed, but a top 10% plan is. Or, you know, diversity is an admirable goal, but schools have no business relying on stereotypes to achieve it. And leaving room for experimentation. And so we'll see Roberts potentially take a thwack at it. Or perhaps assign it to Clarence Thomas and have him burn the entire house down. Marches
0: of Stern, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Mary. Marches of Stern is a senior writer at Slate, covering the Supreme Court. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate+. Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support from Anna Phillips and Jared Downing. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. I will be back in this feed tomorrow. Catch you then.